four speakers, and so I've decided to subcontract my job of introducing them all, as they all know one another very well. They've collaborated together on this um, wonderful new volume, Science and Religion Around the World, and uh, there will be copies at the back, and they'll talk about, um, about what's available in this volume, and the price they're going to be offering out at uh, towards the end of the talk. So I will just introduce um, Ron Numbers, who will then proceed to explain what they're going to do. Ron. Well, I'm delighted to see so many people uh, out this evening and so many likely buyers for the book. <laughs> uh, we could actually do something uh, with, with this. Uh, just to give you an idea of, of what to expect, uh, I'm going to be speaking for five to ten minutes. Um, I am the co-author with John Brooke of this uh, new book, and I'm a historian of science, medicine, and religion at the University of Wisconsin in the U.S. And then um, I'll be followed by Keith Benson, a colleague who uh, organized the uh, conference that produced this book, uh, who will say a few words about uh, our deceased friend and collaborator, Maggie Osler, uh, who died suddenly a few months ago, and to whom this, this volume is dedicated. Uh, Keith is uh, recently retired from the University of British Columbia uh, in Western Canada. And then we have somebody that is a household name in Oxford, at least he tells me that. The Emeritus Idris, Andreas Idris, Professor of Science and Religion, Emeritus. Exactly. Yes. Uh, with whom it was an honor to co-edit uh, this volume. Uh, he has clearly established himself in the last quarter of a century as the uh, man in the history of science and religion. And then somebody uh, who is almost his equal, uh, Professor Jeffrey Cantor from University of Leeds, who I believe has also recently retired, right? Uh, who uh, has, has co-authored uh, a major book uh, with John Brook, who has a fairly recent book out on Quakers, Jews, and science, and another one on the exhibition of... 1851 and religion. But it, you won't be able to buy it, it without a mortgage. Uh, it's very expensive. So that's the lineup. And then we'd like to open up uh, this event for discussion uh, about the topic of science and religion, particularly about uh, science and religion around the world, uh, both within and outside the, the Christian community. I'll just say a few words about how this book uh, came into existence, uh, beginning with its conception in the summer of 2002. It sounds like a long time ago, and it was a long time ago. Uh, a group of us, thanks to the John Templeton patient, uh, came together in Granada, Spain, uh, to organize the international uh, Society for Science and Religion is a very honorific society. To be a member of that is just about like being a member of the Royal Society. 
Christ John? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was it was envisioned as uh, an honorary society uh, with I think a hundred members. And uh, very early on they divided us up by discipline. And so they put the historians in one room and the flaws in another room and the physicists in still another one. Uh, and so there were, must have been a dozen or 15 historians there. Uh, and we said, well, why are we here and what should we do? And before that meeting was over, we had decided that perhaps one of the best things we could do was to uh, organize a book on the history of science and religion around the world. After all, the society was called International Society. We had people who represented a number of different religions there. And so it seemed almost natural that we would try to extend the scope of the history of science and religion. I don't know how familiar you are with the field, but overwhelmingly, what passes as the history of science and religion is actually the history of science and Christianity. Occasionally, some people have included Jews and Muslims, but that's about the extent of it. Uh, so we consciously set out to bring in uh, historians who could contribute synthetic chapters not only on Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, and we have very good chapters uh, on, on those, but uh, East and South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, and to accommodate everybody in our ecumenical world, unbelief. So the agnostics and the atheists get their chapter uh, there as well. We're not privileging one type of religious belief uh, over another. It turned out to be a long and sometimes frustrating exercise to get this to fruition. Uh, in 2005, as I mentioned, Keith Benson organized a conference for us uh, on the shores of the Pacific Ocean, and that jacked us up a little bit, and we got some momentum from that. Uh, but working with people from different traditions with different styles and values was not always easy. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, at times, chauvinism involved, where contributors wanted understandably, to put the best face of their tradition forward. So there were never any problems. This religion embraced science without any difficulty, and it's a happy existence uh, down to the present. So we had to temper a little bit of that. And I think we succeeded in getting rid of the most egregious, except in modern Christianity. Many of you may know that there has been a sea change in the historiography of science and religion during the past 25, 35 years. It has gone from a focus on the warfare between science and religion to an emphasis on the complexity of the relationship between science and religion. And no man has been more responsible for that change than John Rook. 
He is the author. He doesn't like this. He is the author of the complexity thesis and has long been celebrated as such. Now, it's easy to do, theoretically. You just show that the people who went before you were simplistic, and you, being a good historian, are going to show how complex it was in, in reality. And, but it's turned out that the history of science and religion has become much, much richer with this approach and much, I would say, truer to what actually happened. Some of us in recent years have gotten a little nervous about this, about the absence of generalizations that many people would look for. Well, okay, it's complex, but isn't there some development overall or some generalization you can offer? Well, I was optimistic for a couple of years that we might be able to do this, but this book that uh, we are celebrating tonight has uh, put the last nail in the coffin. If we ever thought that we could get beyond complexity, this book will convince you it's impossible. You could get something of a master narrative for the Abrahams, for Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Many of the same events uh, responding to some of the same developments. Although each of those stories is immensely complex. There's no such thing as the Christian position on something, or the Jewish position, or even the Muslim position on something. It has varied according to time and, and place. Uh, but when you bring in the East Asian Indian and sub-Saharan African religions into the story. It becomes so complex that even the basic categories are called into question. What does science mean? Or better yet, what did science mean to people in sub-Saharan Africa or early China? What does religion mean? Or is it a Western invention imposed on the belief systems of people uh, around the world. There is virtually no overlap between the story that appears for Sub-Saharan Africa and Christianity or, or Judaism. It is really essentially complex. So, John, congratulations, you have won. <laughs> I think I should stop there and uh, pass the baton on to Keith Benson. To demonstrate that this is going to be a historical talk, I will use a historical instrument. <laughs> um, It's clear enough without the lights being dimmed, I believe. Um, let me just mention at the outset, I, I, um, as, as Ron will attest, um, I don't even think. So thinking on my feet is a, is a, uh, a task. So I've written out some, uh, some comments uh, about uh, Maggie Osler. But uh, let me just mention at the outset that uh, 
I was actually a graduate student at Oregon State University where she first started her career, and Maggie and I enjoyed a 30-some year relationship. And I won't be speaking as much about her scholarship as I will about her as a person, so that you all who don't know Maggie can get a flavor of what we enjoyed at several meetings at the University of British Columbia, and certainly people like John and Ron who have been at her home enjoyed about her personality. The volume that we have our launching today is dedicated to Margaret J. Osler, and J stands for Joe. And if you're an American, as she was, Maggie Joe sounds like a name of somebody from the southern part of the United States, but there'll be a clarification on that in just a moment. Maggie, as she is known to virtually everyone, was an advisory editor to the Templeton Grant that supported the production of this volume, as well as the previous book, Galileo Goes to Jail, and that's another one that you should all look at. When the present volume was being ready for publication this past summer, several of us received an email message from Maggie with the subject line, Very Bad News. She informed us that she had just been diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. Almost immediately, we decided to dedicate the book to Maggie, and changes were made to it toward this end. Unfortunately, although Maggie was aware of this gesture, she died in mid-September before the book appeared. This evening, I would like to take a few moments to honor Maggie's memory by relating a few aspects of her life enriched by a few anecdotes. But first of all, let me assure you that my remarks will not be somber. After all, Maggie would be appalled if somberness or sobriety prevailed this evening. So let's replace this more somber picture with one that's much more familiar to us. And this um, highlights her ruddy complexion. Maggie would be a. In fact, when we received her terrible news this past summer, she ended that email, as most of you would recall, by stating that there was a positive side to her diagnosis. That is, she would not suffer from Alzheimer's, a disease that afflicted both of her parents. And again, she didn't say that in a somber way. It was like, there's some good news. As everyone who knows Maggie can attest, she was irreverent opinionated, profane, cynical, and a true friend. She came to these characteristics naturally uh, through the influence of her parents. Both were that exceedingly rare brand of American. Uh, they were socialists. Um, indeed, their sympathies for Joseph Stalin gave Maggie her middle name. So Joe came from <laughs> Joseph Stalin. Not surprisingly, her politics were far left. She was an ardent champion of human rights, and, and this is really quite um, amazing because she uh, spent her academic career in Canada, and for most Americans, we look to our neighbor to the north for human rights, but it was never codified in uh, the uh, Canadian political system until, uh, until recently. The, the, the Canadian sympathies are far 
uh, more uh, uh, oriented toward human rights than American ones, but uh, Maggie was one of the people who uh, championed this uh, in Canada. And she was also a tireless supporter of gay rights. Well, let me spend a little time on Maggie's characteristics of irreverence, opinion, uh, opinion nature, uh, profane, cynical, and a true friend. She was irreverent, which is either surprising or a natural outcome of her decided interest in the history of science and religion, particularly during the period of the scientific revolution. Fortunately, she lived in Calgary, in Alberta, Canada's center of conservatism, and that gave Maggie plenty of targets for her venomous irreverence. And uh, in fact, she was well uh, appreciated by her students for these caustic comments that just came out in almost all of her, her lectures. Relatedly, she was opinionated. Um, that's not exactly correct. Maggie held to the correct perspective, and those who disagreed with her were wrong. <laughs> Only in her scholarly life could she obtain other perspectives, but just barely. She was also profane. Her two favorite four-letter words rhyme with, to use sporting names, mitt and puck. The latter was often used in conjunction with her favorite finger, as my German professor would say, der Mittelfinger. <laughs> she was also one of the most cynical people I have ever met. True happiness always eluded her because such a state could not exist. An enlightened populace was an oxymoron. And obviously there was no such thing as an upright politician. Consequently, Maggie eschewed any academic position higher than professor. Administrators were simply not to be trusted. Now, this is unusual because for the last 10 years of her life, she served as secretary of the History of Science Society. But I can assure you, since I was directly involved, it took several days for us to convince her into accepting uh, that position, a position she enjoyed uh, greatly. But most importantly, Maggie was a true friend. It was not always easy being her friend, since she offered corrective advice at every corner. For example, when I flew to Calgary to visit her one time many years ago, she picked me up at the airport and immediately informed me that the ball cap I wore had to go. Although I had not asked her, she clearly and forcefully assured me that the cap did nothing for my appearance. She also regularly gave suggestions ranging from the best stereo equipment to the best music to the best kitchen utensils and to the best places to eat anywhere all given without solicitation although maggie's illness rapidly took its toll on her she died in less than two months after her diagnosis it did not change her personality she never wavered in her skepticism she was always ready with profane expressions concerning her fate, and she always asked about her friends. An excellent scholar, devotee of fine scotch, and a person superbly equipped with a rivaled sense of humor, Maggie will, all, will be missed. At the same time, we have all been blessed by having her in our lives and for being able to dedicate this wonderful book to an exceptionally wonderful woman.
Thank you, Keith. For one who knew Maggie very well, and indeed was staying with her at the time I was offered the Idris chair here in Oxford, and therefore there's a certain poignant personal connection. But for anybody who knew her, what Keith has just said was very touching and very moving. I just want to show you another book, because just before she died, she did have the pleasure of seeing the copy, this copy, of her own book, which came out in the autumn or the fall. It's called Reconfiguring the World. It's one of the best recent introductions to the scientific revolution of the 17th century, with some very pertinent remarks about the place of religion in the rise of modern science. Keith mentioned the hi-fi. I, I have one aphorism from Maggie that I always remember myself, and it was, it's all in the cables. <laughs> and I thought perhaps I should pass that little insight on to you. If you're a hi-fi enthusiast and you want to improve the quality of the sound, you don't need new speakers, you don't need a new amplifier, <laughs> you need bigger cables. <laughs> <laughs> well, to the <coughs> content of the book, as one does, I was flicking through my email a couple of days ago, and encountered the notice of an article apparently just published in the Chronicle Review by Stephen Asma, who was writing about the four horsemen of the new atheism. And the article was a rather clever critique because it conceded that the likes of, of Dawkins and, and Dennett, in their own context, produce arguments that have cogency and plausibility. But his argument was that they're actually inadequate and provincial when considered with reference to the daily experience of the vast majority of humankind. And I'd just like to quote from what Asma says in this article. If the horsemen left their world of books, conferences, classrooms, and computers to travel more, to travel more in the developing world for a year, they would find some unfamiliar religious arenas. And he goes on, having lived in Cambodia and China and travelled in Thailand, Laos, Vietnam and Africa, I have come to appreciate how religion functions quite differently in the developing world where the majority of believers actually live. The four horsemen, their fans and their enemies, all fail to factor in their own prosperity when they think about the uses and abuses of religion. Well, there's enough in that to keep us occupied all evening, if that's the track we might wish to go down. They say, don't they, that broadens the mind. Those of us who look at science and religion as historians are, of course, used to time travel. 
because that is in the very nature of our trade. And as Ron was saying, over the last 20 or 30 years, historical studies of science and religion have had a significant <coughs> impact, at least on the way scholars, if not the general public, approach this very fraught subject. And just to reinforce what Ron was saying, it seems to me that three lessons at least have been learnt. Many more, perhaps. One is that we shouldn't talk about science and religion. We should talk about sciences in the plural and religions in the plural. Because there are many different sciences, there are many different religions. So maybe we got the title of this book <laughs> wrong, uh, even had we stopped to think about it. Then again, secondly, the importance of context. We look at these debates on science and religion very often through the lens of the philosophers who are interested in, quite rightly, the validity of the arguments. But for the historian, what is critical is the context in which arguments gained or lost plausibility. For example, and it's an obvious one, you cannot understand the Galileo affair without some appreciation of the counter-reformation context and the politics between Spain and the, uh, the, the papacy in the early years of the 1630s. And then the third lesson, which Ron alluded to, the failure of all general theses about <coughs> conflict or harmony or independence when we're faced with the rich diversity of the historical record. Well, I'm glad he thinks I've won uh, <laughs> the argument. I'm as sympathetic as he is to the view that the denial of simple meta-narratives should not mean that we eschew the search for some patterns in history. This new book of ours offers what we hope will be an enticing travelogue, and in two respects. The time travel of Boring is still there because we are examining the development of the sciences and their place in different religious cultures, their impact on the world. But it's travel in the geographical sense that I think probably does distinguish this book. From China to sub-Saharan Africa, from the United States to the Middle East, from Europe to India and Southeast Asia. Our various contributors have examined the place of the sciences in the main religious traditions. And because the sciences have been a resource in the spread of agnosticism and atheism, we did decide to have a chapter on unbelief around the world. Now, as with most comparative studies, intriguing questions arise as we broaden our horizons. <coughs> through such travel. And in a final chapter to this book that surveys all the preceding chapters, David Livingston, very fine historian of science, even asks this question. 
is the very attempt to map encounters between the two realms of science and religion not perhaps a localized Western perspective imperiously imposed on the rest of the world. <coughs> there are those who like to think of religious belief as a kind of virus that infects the mind. No names. <laughs> <laughs> but one of David Livingstone's conclusions in this book is that if there is a virus that has proved difficult to eradicate, it's the belief that science and religion must inexorably conflict. Now, it would be easy to regard this book as yet another attempt at eradicating that particular virus. And incidentally, I think, it does have therapeutic power in that context. But the rationale for this book, as Ron was implying, is actually more modest, simply to explore how the sciences have been valued, encouraged, or obstructed in different cultural traditions, at different times and in different places. And this, of course, leads to some pretty big questions. Surely, and you're probably asking this, you ought to be, surely the sciences are pursued under the banner of a quest for universal, not localised knowledge. And the answer to that question, of course, is yes. But, in a different sense, perhaps, could not the same be said of the major world religions? Do they not, as John Milbank has recently insisted, do they not seek to insinuate one universal culture that will organize the earth as one specific sacral domain? Precisely how they've tried to do so, seems to me, has had a bearing on their receptivity to different forms of secular knowledge. And the variation really is striking. Issues of concern in one religious tradition may be of little moment in another. Why is it, why is it that there was no equivalent of the Galileo affair in Muslim society? Why is the principle of biblical accommodation so prominent among Christian astronomers and natural philosophers in the 16th and 17th centuries, why is it not nearly so evident in Quranic exegesis? Among the Abrahamic religions, staying with them for a moment, why is it that within Christianity and Islam there was a stimulus to astronomical study, whereas in early Judaism, it seems that the investigation of nature focused rather on anatomical and taxonomic studies. Not that it always has done, but that the initial thrust appears to have been in that direction. Why is it that the word nature, which has so peppered Western scientific and philosophical literature, 
was almost impossible to translate into Chinese or Japanese in the 19th and early 20th centuries. A word we take for granted all the time is simply not translatable into some other cultures. Why is it that the word species was missing from Arabic literature, with the consequence, with the consequence that Darwin's theory was very difficult to translate <coughs> simply and directly. Think of the title of Darwin's book. Why were models of biological evolution sometimes more readily assimilated by exponents of Indic religions than within Christendom? The set of, of, uh, of subjects that we associate today with science was so deeply embedded in the ritual and religious life of the Chinese that it was not even seen as an independent entity until interaction with the West introduced the terms science and religion in the 19th century. And even then, incidentally, through a recently coined Japanese translation, the very word science were not recognized, as it were, in China until the 19th and 20th century. That's in a civilization that made more contributions towards technology, probably, than any other up until <coughs> the 18th century. Was there ever a concept of physical law in Chinese philosophy to compare with that in European culture from the 17th century onwards? When natural theology has proved such an important bridge between religion and science within Christendom, why has it not featured significantly in the more Judaic engagements with the sciences? And Geoffrey Cantor, who's speaking after me, um, stressed that particular differentiation. There was quite a long list of questions. And because this is a book launch, I'm not going to give you the answer. <laughs> but I do want to highlight two features of this book that I think you might find make it distinctive and rewarding. First, it provides many instructive examples of what may happen when the science of one culture comes into contact with the science or the worldview of another. Actually, rather a lot of things can happen. When the Jesuit missionaries arrived in China in the 16th and 17th centuries, there was a stimulus arising from the integration of the indigenous with the more Western science. Some Jesuits even served in official positions in China, such as the directorship of the Astronomical Bureau. But there, as elsewhere, there were also tensions, not only on religious grounds, but also because of complaints from many of the Chinese that Western astronomers were neglecting <coughs> traditional methods of linking events in nature with human 
affair. Sometimes the knowledge brought by Christian missionaries could be an overwhelming threat to a prevailing knowledge system, as in Africa, when holistic and communal approaches to healing were challenged by the mechanistic and individualistic systems brought from Europe. There are other examples where Christian missionaries positively encouraged the development of the more local scientific initiatives. As, for example, when three Baptist missionaries in India in the late 18th and early 19th centuries did far more than simply diffuse a London-centred science. One of that trio, William Carey, established an impressive botanical garden and was actually instrumental in forming the Agricultural Society of India. This book, I think, illustrates all manner of cultural hybridization. And attitudes towards imported science were usually shaped by, and even hardened by, local political circumstance. Resistance to threatening forms of Western science has often occurred in the name of resistance to colonial intrusion. And I think the issues here become even more fascinating when the intruding science is already overlaid by cultural accretions that make it even less appealing. And I'm thinking here of the way in which Darwin's theory was first encountered in the Middle Eastern country. Not, and notice this, not through translations of Darwin himself, but through the atheistic interpretations of the German materialists. And the ramifications of that are still with us today. And the second point I wanted to underline is that it's worth reminding ourselves that the natural sciences have featured as a marker of what is distinctive in particular cultures, but also as a means of mediating between them. The sciences have often been valued precisely because they've held the promise of a form of knowledge that could be shared and appreciated independently of religious allegiance. To the present day, there is a rhetoric that looks to science as an auspicious subject for interfaith dialogue. But there is also a difficulty here, because in societies dominated by modern science-based technologies, there has remained the temptation to claim for one's own religious tradition a special relationship with the sciences. And Ron alluded to this in his remarks. The first historian of the Royal Society in England, Thomas Spratt, held the splendidly parochial view that the Anglican Church had just this special kind of relationship with science. During the last 150 years, adherents of Buddhism have repeatedly claimed 
that theirs is a system of belief especially propitious for the sciences. Actually, the chapter on Buddhism in this book, which is absolutely fascinating, <coughs> makes the point that when 19th century European scholars reconstituted the Buddha and exported this Western Buddha back to Southeast Asia, where it was not automatically familiar, that reconstituted Buddha was then turned against the Christian religion by advocates of the, the, the Buddhist philosophy. Very complex into relationships. <coughs> Too often, Muslim and Christian scholars have sought to trump each other over who discovered what first. Was it an Arab or was it Descartes? That sort of issue. And there is a distressing feature of these polemics, and it's this. That they lead to caricatures of the relationship between science and religion, the relations that are said to be characteristic of the religion that is under attack. Apologists for Eastern religions have repeatedly held up the Galileo affair as somehow typical of the oppressive character of the Christian churches just as Western historians used to minimize the scientific achievements of the Islamic world. So, the bottom line. Our hope in this book is that it might be an antidote to such cultural chauvinism. Thank you. It's now my very great pleasure to welcome my dear friend Geoffrey Cantor, with whom I've collaborated over many years, and who wrote a brilliant chapter on modern Judaism and science. Thank you very much. I seem to be the only contributor to this volume who is actually here. So I'm in a sense speaking up on sorry. Didn't he contribute? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll see, uh, uh, oh. apart from the editors, <laughs> <laughs> who contributed chapters, individual chapters to all, for, for the volume. So I'm speaking on behalf of 14, 15 other people, and my subject is going to be miscellanies. <coughs> the OED defines miscellany as a book, volume, or literary production containing miscellaneous pieces on various subjects. And you may be interested to know against this particular definition, there's a wonderful example. It comes from a 19th century Congregationist who claimed the Bible, in fact, is a miscellany, a very various miscellany. But there's a second definition which I also want to, to make you use of. And this is going to bring us a bit closer to the volume which we're going to be launching today. One with separate articles, treatises, 
or other studies on a subject collected into one volume. Now, I have a love of miscellanies because there are kinds of volumes where you can just sort of jump in and find extraordinary and un unexplained. So a little history on this. I'll start by considering periodicals as they're one of my, my, my fav favourite forms of publication. And a wonderfully impressive earlier example of a miscellany is the Gentleman's Magazine, which was founded in 1731. And it covered, quote, short stories, book reviews, poetry, advertisements for new books, including my own, I'm sure, correspondence, summaries and extracts from important publications, parliamentary digest, foreign intelligence, popular science, original and selected poetry, obituaries, <coughs> meteorological diary, the price of goods and stocks, and much else. And the Gentleman's Magazine was very much intended for the enlightened 18th century gentleman, because it, that gentleman, by reading his monthly uh, Gentleman's Magazine, would be well informed by a wide variety of subjects. Now, Macellan has changed a lot, particularly in the 19th century. Um, they tended to offer the kind of assortment of information which the Gentleman's Magazine of, of a century earlier did, but instead became collections of much more substantive articles, often linked by a common theme, and thus bringing us closer to uh, my, the second uh, definition I gave, which was a collection of separate articles or treatises on a, on a particular subject. Uh, the Waterloo Index lists over 500 19th century periodicals with the word miscellany in their titles. And these included some which encompass science, such as the short-lived uh, London Miscellany of Literature, Science and Art. And it's a pity Professor Ward isn't here because he might actually be a descendant of the person who edited Ward's Miscellany under the superintendence of the Society for the Advancement of Literature, Science and Religion. And many of the periodicals which you pick up in, uh, at airport or train newsstands are direct descendants of this kind, these kinds of publications, such as Time, New Statesman. Now, as well as the word miscellany being applied to periodicals, right from the beginning, uh, the earliest uses also refer to books which carried a wide range of subjects. And today, publishers are very ambivalent towards, towards such, such, such books. They often fight shy of single-volume miscellanies, particularly if they have wide scope and don't have, have an adequate focus because they're not likely to attract great readership. However, publishers, and presumably the uh, uh, re reading public, uh, tends to be very enthusiastic now about miscellanies which bring together a vast amount of information on a particular subject. And notice particularly the Cambridge Companions, which I think run to a couple of hundred uh, titles now, where you can stu study, and there is of course a, a, a recent, recent one edited by P P uh, Peter Harrison here, on science and religion. So you can get a dozen or so articles on a particular subject. But I want to particularly draw your attention to the surprising number of miscellanies devoted to that subject, science and religion, which have been published over the last 25 years. These include two encyclopedias, Bern Grenz and Van Hoistings, 
an Oxford handbook, a Cambridge companion, and in press, a Routledge companion. And in addition to these, there are five these five publications. I've counted 15, I hope I haven't missed too many, miscellanies with wide remit and several others with more specific uh, ones. And at the head of this list, chronologically speaking, and a roll of drums at this point, stands God in Nature, edited by David Greenberg <coughs> and our own Lumbers, published in 1986. And since then, Ron has co-edited, I hope I've counted this correctly, three further volumes uh, of, of collected essays, and John Brooke has co-edited four, which gives you a slight read, John. Uh, and both Ron and John are to be warmly congratulated for their commitment to the subject of science and religion and for their sterling efforts in editing these volumes, including, of course, the present one. And by doing this, they may have made available a wealth of recent scholarship on science and religion uh, to students, to scholars, and to the wider readership. It's quite interesting to reflect that collections of this kind far outnumber the single volume works which seek to offer a broad coverage in the area of science and religion, starting, of course, with John's own 1991 Landmark book, and including just a small number of others like Richard Olson's more recent volume. So the question I want to ask is, why are miscellanies so prominent in our field? And one reason is that even among eclectic historians, very few scholars have the intellectual reach to address a wide range of topics, a wide range of periods, a wide range of religions, a wide range of sciences. The second is that, perhaps in contrast to Kuhn's notion of paradigms in science, the sort of science and religion uh, is really very ill-defined and amorphous one, and that's a central core of teachable material on which practitioners and teachers can agree. And thirdly, readers, and presumably publishers, appreciate, I think, a wide range of topics, approaches and voices that can be achieved by putting a number of authors together <coughs> between a, a, a pair of covers. Provided, of course, those subjects are well integrated. And these points, but particularly the first and the third, I think are very much germane to uh, our book, Science and Religion Around the World. And I was just wondering uh, how it's going to be sort, sort of shortened. Would it be around the world in 12 chapters, do you think? Uh, although Toby Huff has attempted some uh, inter-religious comparisons, I doubt whether any scholar could have uh, written with equal authority on the seven, seven religious areas, more than traditions, and one irreligious tradition encompassed by this book. And this, I think, is a prime example of where a miscellany consisting of parallel studies is really necessary for opening up the field. But I want to argue that there are three further reasons why this particular miscellany is to be welcomed. First, having some experience of interfaith work, it is very pleasing that science and religion, a topic that can generate a great deal of controversy within a single religious tradition, let alone between many religions, is being tackled by an interfaith group of scholars. It will, I hope, be read and appreciated by people of many faiths and none, 
and thereby contribute to interfaith discussions, especially as science is such a crucial aspect of modernity that religious traditions are having to engage, sometimes with great difficulty. Secondly, to reiterate a point which has already been made, until very recently, the literature on science and religion has been confined almost exclusively to science and Christianity, and even then, to Western Christianity. Around the world acknowledges that what has long been neglected, that religion could be replaced by religions in the plural, just as the historians have long appreciated the need uh, to talk about the different sciences, rather than that they're just being one science. Thirdly and finally, I want to mention the comparative perspective. I fully agree with, with, with uh, what, what both Ron and John said earlier about the way in which generalizations are going to really escape because of the great diversity of material. And yet, I think there's something else worth saying. I first encountered the scholarly study of religion when I was a student at King's College London where I studied physics. Uh, throughout one year on Monday mornings, uh, everything else in the college came to a stop and there was a series of, religious, of lectures being delivered from one year on comparative religion by a man called Geoffrey Palander who wrote a well-known book on comparative religion. And just as his lectures and his book offered a comparative view of the different religious traditions, uh, this collection, which we're launching today, brings us closer to making, I think, viable comparisons between the different religious traditions in respect to their engagement with various aspects of science. And, as John has just pointed out, there are, of course, many, many dangers here, such as trying to... to uh, uh, advance your own religion and denigrate uh, others. But also, given the complexity of the issues, I think it's very difficult to make honest, contextualised and historically informed comparisons and contrasts between the religions. Nonetheless, <coughs> that said, I hope that this book will encourage historians and others to pursue a more comparative perspective in the study of science and religion, paying full attention and sensitive attention to historical context. So for the reasons I've given, I think this is a landmark research, and I feel honoured to have been invited to contribute a paper. I am, however, left uncertain how best to launch this book. Although I've never done so, I know the formula for launching a ship. But books and ships perhaps have little in common. But there's one of a few phrases which seem to apply to both ships and books and would be most unfortunate and I sincerely hope would not be appropriate in this case. They can both seek without trace. <laughs> so, let me go to the other extreme and end with a more positive set of words. I name this book, Science and Religion Around the World. May it be downloaded into 10,000 Kindles. <laughs>